This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Um, so thanks so much for joining us today on Doing Translational Research. Carl Pillemer, um, the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, is ill today. Uh, I just talked to him about an hour ago and he sounds awful. Um, and so I am standing in for him. Uh, I'm Chris Wildman. I'm the associate director of the Bronfenbrenner Center, and I'm also a professor of policy analysis and management. Um, our guest today is James Garbarino. Uh, James holds the Maud Clark Chair in Psychology and was founding director of the Center for the Human Rights of Children at Loyola University, Chicago. Since 1994, he has served as a, as a scientific expert witness in murder cases. Among the books he has authored are Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us, and Listening to Killers. Um, so today I just have sort of four core questions for you, although we'll probably have a little bit of back and forth. And so uh, my first question for you, um, and welcome and thank you for joining us, by the way, is how would you summarize your main research interest? Well, as you mentioned, for the last 25 years, I've done work as a psychological expert witness in murder cases, and I've viewed that both as a public service, but also as a research opportunity, an opportunity to do uh, research on the developmental pathways uh, that lead people into violent behavior, particularly lethally violent behavior. Uh, That was a major focus, and getting involved in these cases has allowed me to see the, the range of data that are available, interviews, assessments, clinical evaluations, school records, and using that data set to try to understand this developmental pathway. Uh, in recent, most recent years, that research focus has been directed to the question, how and why do teenagers who commit murder undergo a process of transformation and rehabilitation in the years that follow, and what can we learn from that about uh, how adolescent brain development interacts with social experience to produce uh, violent crime and then how that can and often does change later on as they move into adulthood. And what would you say from that area of research have been sort of the most surprising things or or the most thought-provoking things for you? Well, I think in a sense the most surprising thing is how many guys who were written off as teenagers who are given these dire psychological assessments where the evaluator says this person is profoundly damaged, uh, this person will get worse, this person uh, 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 has no capacity to benefit from treatment or intervention. And then you come back 20 years later and you find they were completely wrong. Um, this, uh, This has been a sort of experiment in the sense that Back in the 1990s, many states had laws that required mandatory life without possibility of parole sentences for juveniles who committed murder. And there's you know, thousands of kids like that. In 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that those mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles were unconstitutional, which has led to resentencing hearings for, eventually for all of those guys who are now in their 30s, 40s. And since they didn't have the expectation of release, one of the interesting questions is what was their motivation for change? And and now, all of a sudden, a, a possible door has opened for them 
So it's been a remarkable thing to see, not just that most of them have become safe for release, most of them have become sort of normal, but some of them, even quite a few of them, have become extraordinary. It's as if when you go to prison like that, you in some sense choose between being a monk, a cloistered monk, or a savage barbarian. And the ones who choose to be a monk, uh, you know, they end up more like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> they spend years meditating and reflecting and studying, and they build a mind and a consciousness, uh, which is extraordinary in many cases. Uh, so that, I'd say, has been the most surprising thing. That's really that's really interesting. I um, it, this seems like the sort of research where there would be a lot of community stakeholders um, and sort of groups more broadly that would be interested. I guess have you worked directly with community partners? And if whether yes or no, I guess what if, what have community stakeholders sort of thought about some of the research that you've been um, working on? Well, in one sense, that you could call the public defender's offices in the various states in which I've done work, a community partners would stakehold because they, you know, they're the ones who have to go into court and organize and utilize what I have to say. Certainly educating them to understand how these developmental processes take place has been uh, one of the outcomes of this work, this sort of feedback loop of feeding back to them when I'm learning about their case and linking it more broadly to developmental research, uh, that's certainly been important. Um, less productive, but something I still persist in, is trying to educate judges to, to look at it this way, to see uh, how the developmental realities are played out in front of them, because often they're either willingly or unintentionally blind to seeing that. And so uh, that whole criminal justice community, broadly speaking, has been uh, a target and a participant in this work. And there is some feedback loops between, uh, between these two parties because when I do a report, I, I sort of try it out on the attorneys and the social workers on the defense team, and we interact to complete the report to make it a collaborative effort. That's great. I, I think personally, sort of legal consulting, especially on issues like this, is one of the core areas of translational research that we don't think about as often as we should. So it's really nice to learn more about that. I guess one, another sort of community partner or community group that it seems like would have thoughts about some of the work you do would be victims' rights groups. And so I was just curious if you've engage with them if there are ways that you've been able to shape a productive dialogue out of something that could be pretty tense? I wouldn't say systematically. Um, I do make an effort when it's feasible, for example, in court, to approach the victim's family to try to let them know that I have compassion for them, not just for the person who killed their loved one. Um, I wouldn't say it's been systematic yet. I'm hoping that this new book, Miller's Children, which is about the rehabilitation transformation of teenage killers, will open some of those doors because there's important dialogue to be had there. There's also the fact that the book includes a section on the healing impact of forgiveness, which means that if families who've lost someone can get to the point where they've processed the experience enough to forgive, it's in their interest, not just the interest of the, uh, of the incarcerated individual. Um, 
so I'm, I'm hoping there's more of that to come as this becomes more systematically disseminated. Okay. And so I think you've, you've talked maybe about some of the things that you would want to communicate in this vein, but <clears throat> if you could choose just sort of two or three things to communicate to the general public about your work or, or maybe the population that you study and work with, what would those sort of two or three core, core points be? Well, certainly one would be that there is the assumption, it's actually even an assumption the Supreme Court made in some of their rulings, that there's a strong correlation, a strong relationship between the nature and severity of a teenager's violent crime and their prognosis for later rehabilitation and transformation, recovery and release. And as a result, uh, the, the, the courts focus on looking at the minutiae details of the crime when, in fact, there's nearly no evidence that that is relevant to the larger question of rehabilitation. So that's one thing that I'm pushing very hard in the courts, in public lectures, in talking with media to try to dislodge the naive view that there's a strong connection there. What really is is at stake is the larger context of this teenager and what it says about their issues and capacity to respond to maturity and education and therapy and become a safe, better person later on. So that certainly, I think, is um, number one in my mind right now. Um, the second is that the Supreme Court said in their rulings that only the rarest cases of juveniles can or should be given life sentences. And the way the courts are operating is exactly the opposite of that, that rather than uh, releasing or giving shorter sentences to most of the kids, most of these guys, judges are simply reimposing either official life sentences or sentences that are so long they're tantamount to life sentences. Now, we're using the term life sentence, but what it really is, of course, is death in prison. I mean, I was working on a case recently. A kid was 16. Uh, the original judge gave him 90 years, and then because there was gang involvement, the law doubled that to 180 years. Well, that's a death in prison sentence, no matter how you look at it. Um, so there's this great discrepancy between... Uh, what the developmental science tells us and how the sentencing is going forward. So when the Supreme Court said only the rarest cases, uh, it led, for example, in a, in a decision in Tatum versus Arizona where the first six cases that came up for resentencing, the judges simply reimposed life without parole. And the Supreme Court said, well, how could all of your cases be the rarest cases? Um, one of my challenges is to figure out just what percent of cases are the rarest cases that cannot benefit. In the 50 cases that I've worked on, I would say there are three that where kids were so damaged that I can't imagine how we'd ever successfully help them get to the point where they were safe and, and ready to be part of the community. So that would be 6%. That, if it's 6%, that could well mean the rarest. So there's certainly that. The third thing I think people would need to understand is that um, right now, many of our sentences for adolescents are either too long or too short. There's a study from Florida that found that juveniles who committed murder who were given nine years, which at one point was sort of common, that after nine years they're released and about 90% of them committed violent crimes soon after. 
because I think they didn't have enough time to get to their mid-20s when their brains mature. And then what they need is time after that to use that mature brain to transform. So I'm thinking that some teenagers need short adolescent interventions if their crime reflects an adolescent crisis, but others need 20 years so they can get to 26 with a mature brain and then have 10 years to use that brain to become fully rehabilitated. Um, so I think those are three things that, in my mind, are, are very salient and very uh, critical issues to pursue in the larger public and in the criminal justice system. Great. Um, so this is, this is a little off script, but you, you've talked a bunch about transformation, and um, it, certainly it seems to me that there are a couple folks that you have in mind specifically. I mean, would you mind sort of sharing some specifics for, for the folks who are listening in about maybe one case where you saw a transformation that was sort of truly exceptional? Well, you know, there are, there are, <laughs> there are quite a few. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is uh, a kid who at 15 became one of the school shooters. He actually killed his parents, went to school, killed some people at school, wounded a bunch of people. And you know the magnitude of his crime is enormous and astounding. It's now 20 years later. I've gotten to know him pretty well. And he's a remarkably thoughtful, sensitive, steady you know, person in his mid-30s. Uh, clearly would have been written off at the time as a total uh, lost cause. Um, I've been really impressed with some of the guys who've taken the educational bull by the horns, particularly they get involved in studying philosophy. You know, when I took philosophy as an undergraduate, the professor made some perfunctory remark about philosophy will be useful for the rest of your life, and of course nobody believed him. But it's true, and you see it with some of these guys. I was talking with a guy recently, you know, he had a terrible upbringing, abuse and neglect and deprivation and adversity, committed a murder when he was about 17, dirt poor, illiterate, you know, just every risk fact you can imagine. But he sort of fell into this role as a monk, and by the time I met him 20 years later, he could be teaching philosophy at an undergraduate college. I was a minor in philosophy as an undergraduate, and it was all I could do to keep up with him. He had memorized pages of major philosophers, and Heidegger and Nietzsche and Plato, and he just wanted to engage it. And so building a mind was his project that had transformed him. And then if you look at the research on the malleability of adult brains, you can see how if you systematically engage in living in a different way as an adult, your brain adapts to that and becomes different, more compatible with that life. So that's, I think, why the changes can be and are uh, enduring for these guys, that their brains have become different brains because they're living a different way. That's great. And I, as an undergraduate philosophy major, it's good that someone is putting philosophy to use in a way that, that I never did. So this is, this is the last question I have for you, and this has been really, um, this has been really fun. But if there were just one real-world change that you could make... Um, what what would it be? Well, my my first answer, <laughs> it's only partially tongue-in-cheek, is we should become Norway. You know, Norway has a criminal justice system, a prison system, which is should be the envy of the world because their goal is to rehumanize rather than dehumanize, to, to promote uh, positive living in the way they treat inmates and the way they structure them and the way they program for them. And in Norway, the maximum sentence for any crime is 22 years. So 
you know, after the Columbine school shooting here in 1999, I was talking to the FBI and one of the FBI agents said, can you tell us something specific we could do to make our schools safer? I said, yes, you jack them off, you put them on wheels and you drive them to Canada. Well, here, I guess the equivalent thing would be jack up the prisons, put them on a boat and send them to Norway. But realistically, it would be to get rid of life without parole sentences for juveniles, period. Discretionary, mandatory, whatever, and recognize that what you want to do is make that initial assessment. Can we deal with it as an adolescent crisis, get them recovered and back out in the world, or make a 20-year investment to transform them and then release them. So these preposterous, what some people call Methuselah sentences of 90 years, 100 years, 60 years, uh, this is, from a developmental point of view, is pointless, um, even if it makes sense in some American consciousness about uh, punishment. So I think it would be to get people to see the fallacy of these sentencing policies and and refuse to reject the humanity of people, even if they commit horrible crimes that's great um so i said that that was my last question but i lied because something you said just made me think of of something else that i, I would just love to hear your thoughts on sort of as a policy issue because your your work dovetails so nicely mm-hmm. with it so what are your thoughts on um sort of minimum age for criminal responsibility mm-hmm. um statutes and, and especially variation across states in those well, there is tremendous variation. Uh, you know, back in the 1990s, there was kind of a moral panic in America about super predators and these violent, out-of-control teenagers who would be proliferating. And a lot of these laws were formed in that era. Um, for example, in, in Wisconsin, if you're 10 years old and you commit a violent crime, you're automatically tried in adult court, and you have to appeal to go back to the juvenile system. I think getting... Getting back to the idea of dealing with juveniles as juveniles, uh, sort of a throwback to where we were, would make a lot of sense and would improve a lot of decision-making. I think that in the case can be made that, uh, you know, at age 14, brains are at the point where they're most sensitive to any intense experience, and that should always be taken into account. So I think the default option ought to be juveniles are treated as juveniles unless we can make a case otherwise rather than the way the trend has been to define them as adults based on their crime, not on their juvenile history and status. Okay, great. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real treat to talk to you today and also to have you visit us here more broadly. Thank you very much. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.